Welcome to Footsteps, the Fort Larned National Historic Site podcast. This season, we're taking a look at Fort Larned's past, present, and future. And this is part two on Fort Larned's past. I'm your host, Ranger Ben, and co-hosting with me today is our volunteer, Elizabeth. How's it going? It's going good. A little hot. A little hot, yeah. Uh, we're recording this in September, and we are eagerly awaiting the fall weather that is no doubt coming uh, as this episode airs. But as we get started, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe what got you interested in, in doing stuff here at the fort. Well, my mom is the secretary treasurer of the Fort Larned Old Guard, and she came out to the Mess and Muster event, and I got to see the other lady volunteers dressed up in their period clothing, and the men were in their uniforms from the period. And I've always kind of wanted to... I guess dress up. The little girl inside of me just wants to dress up all the time. I used to see the ladies at Dodge at Boot Hill. They dressed up in their clothing for Boot Hill. And then we went to Ben's Fort when I was like 11. And there were a couple lady volunteers there. And that's just something I've kind of always been interested in, but never really realized I could partake in. And so when I told George, I was like, how do I get into this? I was like, how do I do this? And George was like, well, here. And he handed me a volunteer packet. And now I'm here. And now I am a school teacher and sometimes a lady of leisure in officer's row. It's great having you out and being able to interpret uh, the post-school. And you always have some fun activities for the kids over there, too. Try to keep it exciting. Try to make it come alive for the visitors. Absolutely. Now, as we get into the episode, uh, today's guest is uh, museum technician uh, Mike Seymour, who's been working out here for quite a while and working with our artifacts. So it's interesting looking at his perspective as we dive deeper into Fort Larned's past and into these items that help tell the story. Personally, one of my favorite parts and always one of my favorite parts of, of his job is taking a look at some of the original artifacts and uh, these things that have so much age to them but are still preserved and still here thanks to a lot of the work that he does. Yeah, he brought in some artifacts and that was that was really cool to see the different surgical tools and the toys that some of the kids could have used on the fort. It was a great interview. Uh, we had a great time and we hope you also enjoy the episode. So here you go. All right, so welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. Uh, so as we get started, why don't you tell us uh, your title, how long you've worked at the park, any other parks you might have worked at? All right. I have uh, only worked at this park. I came here as a volunteer in 1996, basically got uh, a seasonal job in 2000 through various uh, step and grade changes uh, up until it stayed the same up until uh, about 2019 when uh, I got the job title of uh, museum technician although I had been doing the work from 2002, 2019, through some uh, problems with uh, HR. They wanted me to uh, uh, either get my PD changed or stop doing museum work. So uh, we talked it over with management here, and they said, well, we don't want to lose you as, the mu as mu doing the museum work, so we will uh, change your PD. And so here I am. As I've worked here... Since 2019, when your PD changed, mm -hmm. it's been wonderful to, to help you out in, in some cases and uh, sort of see behind that curtain and, and see what your work is and mm -hmm. all that goes into it. Fun to see how these uh, artifacts that you deal with kind of help tell the story of the fort. Yeah, we have a lot of stuff here, a lot of stuff. 
and even more stuff in the regional collection right. too, right? Right. Yes, if uh, an actual count a count would be uh, about two hundred and sixteen thousand plus. Now two hundred thousand are uh, at region in storage up there, so. My uh, immediate uh, uh, challenge is inventories and uh, cataloging. Don't do much deaccessioning, but accessioning and cataloging and, and things like that. So I have about uh, close to 12, 13,000 items here, of which about just under 3,000 are on display. Wow. In the, uh, without, th- throughout the park. Yeah. In all the buildings. So, uh, now, for our listeners who haven't had a hand in museum work before, what uh, what is accessioning and deaccessioning? Well, accessioning is is basically when you accession something, you take ownership of that artifact. We get uh, items that are donated. Uh, we get items that are transferred from other parks. We purchase items. So, no matter how you uh, acquire the item, uh, if it's uh, if it hasn't been modified, if it hasn't been refinished, which are uh, two other categories that we have to uh, consider, the uh, uh, item is uh, usually uh, an original item is usually uh, a session, which it goes into the accession into the accession book, and then cataloged into the into the catalog system or into the program, the, the museum program that we have on computer here. Deaccessioning is when you find something in there that was cataloged in air. Or it's out of the out of our scope of collections uh, time frame. There are several other things that can can possibly uh, uh, become a reason why you need to deaccession. But most of ours, we've we've found out that uh, a lot of things uh, back in the 1970s, the uh, Park Service wanted everything cataloged, meaning uh, reproduction, uh, period pieces, props, everything was to be cataloged. Well, now they realize that that was a big mistake. So we're one of the parks that still has a lot of these things that are items, I should say, that are still catalogs. So that's been one of my projects this year. I finally uh, have permission to uh, deaccession some of the reproduction items and things like that. But uh, they do, they are in the count of this 216,000, but uh, they uh, total about uh, just, just over uh, six, 600, right at 600, gives you an idea. But yeah, deaccessioning is basically just getting rid of the stuff you, uh, it, like I say, excess. It, maybe it's uh, a reproduction, maybe it's been uh, refinished or re- repaired in some way, so it basically isn't original. But we can still use it, you know, it's still, it, it still uh, passes the 10-foot rule, so to speak, you know. <laughs> But it, but it isn't one of those original it's, artifacts that right, needs right. special attention. Now, you can't do that with archaeology. With archaeology, everything is cataloged no matter what because basically when it comes out of the ground, or you, it's, if it comes out of the ground, it's archaeology. If, it, uh, if you find it on the, on the uh, surface, which maybe it worked to the surface, which happens, uh, it's a field find. Either way, it's, it's cataloged. You can't, you can't get around catalog, uh, not cataloging uh, uh, archaeology. So if that's the class, again, it gets cataloged. <laughs> What's your favorite part of your role at Fort Learned? My favorite part is basically it is, uh, uh, I have a challenge that uh, we have a lot of volunteers and uh, sometimes they take it upon themselves that I'd like this item over here better than where 
uh, they have it. Sometimes they move them and don't tell me, and I get a little upset because I have to go find these things because uh, you, you basically... Uh, the uh, original stuff may be mixed in with the non-original stuff, but if it's cataloged, you have to account for it. That's that's the that's the the uh, downside of it. So, uh, uh, but like I say, uh, taking care of, uh, making sure everything is secure, uh, making sure it's there. That's uh, and and in helping you with inventories and things like that, it it gets very specific as to where that item is in the room. Yes, yes. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but uh, when I got here, an item might say it's in uh, the commissary. Okay, we're in the commissary. So the program allows you to elaborate and, uh, you know, more fine-tune that location. So, and when I also uh, arrived here, nothing was photographed in the past uh six, seven years, I've photographed over 12,000 items. And uh, it makes it much easier when you say, okay, I've got two of these. Now, which one is it? So you go to the photograph and, and you can tell, you know, by, by the photograph that it's uh, this one or that one. A lot of the things that we deal with are 150 plus years old. What goes into making sure that we'll have them for another 150 years in, in the state that they're currently in? Well, environment is, is, uh, is the key. If uh, you have a climate change, especially humidity, that changes for, uh, let's say, uh, 5 or 10% overnight, you're in trouble. You need to, if, if the rooms don't have HVAC or air conditioning and uh, heat, uh, and you can't really control them, the best thing you can do then, like we have, is to slow it down. So the rooms are sealed, the museum rooms are sealed, to where uh, it may take a uh, uh, thirty-six to forty, or yeah, thirty to forty hours before, uh, let's say, from fall or spring, when hum- uh, temperatures can rise and humidities can rise and fall, then basically it uh, it slows down the uh, the change in humidity, and that's the key to keeping keeping a, a certain artifacts, you know, uh, preserved. And of course, everything that you uh, well, I should say you sh- you can't handle uh, a piece of textile like you would a piece of wood, you know. So uh, basically, there's certain criteria to uh, uh, take care and preserve textiles, and certain things for metal, certain things for wood, certain things for uh, uh, ceramics. And of course, I always say ceramics usually take care of themselves unless you drop and break them. Then <laughs> then you've got troubles. But, yeah. Uh, now, in an ideal world, you'd have all of these items in a sealed vault at a consistent temperature and humidity. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in your mind, where is that line between preserving these things and presenting them? Well, the uh, museum handbook says basically 55% is a point of no return for preservation, perfect preservation. Anything 55% or below uh, is uh, sufficient uh, or more than sufficient, but uh, we we can't always achieve that. So basically, it's uh, we have hygrometers in every room and we monitor them quite frequently to see, you know, what what is changing and then if we do detect a change we look at some of the more vulnerable artifacts to say or to see if they uh, have been affected for those that might argue that say like a book should just stay in a vault so that we can make sure we we keep it well that's that's that can be a pretty con- uh, controversial in the fact that uh, you know you want you may, may want to see the book on display or something like that but if you can't 
control the humidity for that book or for any communication object. Uh, basically, you need to you need to get it off, get it out of display. Most of our most of our stuff are. Uh, Again, we'll pass the 10-foot rule. It looks like a book, uh, or an old book, you know, from a distance, but it's really not. Not to, tell, not to give away all the secrets, but, uh, uh, yeah, you've got you've to think of the artifact. I mean, if, it's gone, if it, you know, deteriorates and at a certain point, you, you, I know you work with leather, you know the same thing. Once you're down below 28% of moisture content in leather, it's done. There's nothing you can do to bring it back, and, and it's just going to dry up and and crack and the key is to get it before you get to that point right right yeah do all you can to to, to get it uh, to a point where you can stabilize it so to speak firearms and uh, such are uh, handled with uh, you know observation of rust and and uh, looking for and uh, trying to uh, get rid of live rust we have several ways of doing that, but you know, of course, once uh, once rust attacks metal, it, it's uh, you may be able to make it look better, but it'll leave a mark, uh, you know, like a, a darker discoloration. So uh, once it's gone beyond that, you're you're pretty much uh, committed to taking care of what's left. So uh, all you can do is is uh, check them over frequently and and keep them uh, with a light coat of oil so that they'll uh, stay preserved or stay uh, rust free for. A long time. What's the most difficult item you've had to preserve? Well, I think uh, in the f- terms of uh, a lot of work, we have uh, some original uniforms from uh, officers uh, uh, that were in uh, some Kansas uh, uh, volunteer units. We have Charles Larned, a cousin to the fort's namesake. Uh, we have his uh, uniform from West Point. He was an instructor there after he left the 7th Cavalry right after the uh, Little, Little Bighorn uh, battle in Montana. But I think the, the clothing, we have a lot of women's clothing. The training for, for taking care of the, these are, you know, storm flat, but basically storm as if they're, somebody's wearing them laying flat. And the only way you can do that is take uh, acid-free or non-lignin paper and roll them up and stuff them up the sleeves. You don't want a crease. You don't want the the weight of the garment to come down and put a crease in it because uh, it weakens the fiber. Uh, we do that with uh, quilts too. Any quilter will know that you got to refold these things uh, frequently or at least once a year or so to uh, preserve the fabric on uh, on a quilt. What would you say is one of your favorite artifacts that we have here in our collection? Well, I uh, was asked this question, and I'm asked this question uh, not frequent, but often, and my favorite is a mailbox that was actually used here at the Ford. It was, it's a mail rounding box. When you open it up, it still has little uh, inked cubby holes, so to speak, with the, and they're marked with uh, certain, certain people, like first sergeants, I say that plurally. There'll be uh, a mark, or there was a uh, label for uh, buglers. Again, it's an artifact that was here. Obviously, when the fort closed, it was part of the uh, items that were auctioned off. Evidently, the Army thought they didn't need it. So it was auctioned off, and a lumber yard here in Larned uh, bought it and uh, used it in their in their company business for years and years. And somehow it got donated back to the fort. There's some furniture that was basically uh, belonged to a, a second lieutenant that was here, and uh, uh, in, the, in the 1870s, and through various circumstances, it was donated back in the 1950s. 
so we have his furniture that was uh, actually here uh, when he was a serving officer here. When you have something with provenance and you have something that uh, has a story behind the provenance, it's kind of neat to be able to know that story and be able to, you know, repeat it to uh, for other people that might be interested. Now that mailbox is... Uh is on display in our museum. Yes, it is. Would that have been in the adjutant's office? Yes, it would have been in the adjutant's office. Some some would call it post headquarters. A, a military man today would call it post headquarters. But uh, back then, the adjutant's office was uh, meant the same thing, basically. So, yes, it, that's where it would have been. And we just got it on display because we do have, a, a, as you both know, we do have our new museum that just opened up in 2021. So this mailbox has been in storage for nearly 30, 25, 30 years. It was an iconic piece that we all felt that needed to be in the museum when it was completed. And uh, we were a little disappointed in the fact that the case wasn't made big enough to where you could open the door all the way and see the names of the, you know, where, where the mail was supposed to be routed. But, uh, if you look uh, at an angle, you can you can see a one or two of them. But uh. no, and, and the artifacts that do have provenance, as you were saying, is is really cool. We have, like you're saying, not only the second lieutenant's items, furniture, and, and otherwise, but we also have a. Thankfully, f- through our friends group, we've been able to acquire a third infantry uh, rifle and Captain Nolan's revolver too. Yes, and we thank them so much. That's uh, those are uh, uh, very iconic especially Captain Nolan, who was right from the get-go in charge or the CO or company commander of uh, A Company, 10th Cavalry. His his uh, downfall was getting lost on the stake plains in Texas, and quite a few horses and men suffered severely. Several of them, horses and men, died, but uh, uh, he survived. So yeah. you talk about how many artifacts you have. What is the strangest artifact? I brought a couple... Uh, over here, and uh, I'm not sure if anybody has ever heard of a tool called a trephine. Fort Larned is still, uh, at least by the late 1860s, we're still practicing caveman medicine out here. I have a, a comment that uh, I read, or to repeat, that I read, uh, an author said, the true gentlemen of the West were army surgeons. And I have to kind of believe that because uh, in the army, you had to become a surgeon. You had to uh, uh, pass a rigid test. Whereas in the civilian world, if I wanted to become a doctor, I could go to a diploma mill college and peek in the door, say, I was here here's your money, give me my diploma, and I'm out the door. And this happened quite a bit. But again, the military surgeon had to uh, pass a rigid test. So I really believe they were the true gentlemen of the West. But there were some surgeons that uh, weren't always uh, up to speed, so to speak. Uh, for example, phenol, carbolic acid, that's, uh, that's been around since the 1830s. Some surgeons embraced it. Some surgeons says, I've never needed it before. Uh, why should I start now? But one thing they all didn't have was x-rays. So if you've got a, uh, something in your abdomen that needs to come out, you're going to probably be probed with either the, uh, uh, the doctor's fingers or you've got a tool called a sounder. 
which is a curved instrument that basically goes in and uh, kind of acts like uh, the old uh, talking to talking to your friend through a couple of cans with a string in between. It will, when it hits something solid and bone too, but uh, if you know a bone's supposed to be there, then it's a bone. But uh, uh, if it's not, you're you're getting a, a, a sound through this uh, steel or uh, metal tool. It'll uh, you know give you an indication of where it's at, so you can start probing and see if you can get that out. Uh, another thing I brought was a trephine. I think I already mentioned that. The trephine basically is uh, to relieve pressure on the on the skull. It's actually a skull drill. I've seen pictures of skeletons that uh, are skulls that has had that operation performed on them, and it's very scary. It, I mean, the skull does not heal. The skull, that, that hole will be there forever. So to have that done uh, was basically, in my opinion, a last resort because some of these holes in these skulls look like the size of a silver dollar or even a little bit bigger. And some of the locations, it's like, where do I go to find this problem? It's got pressure on the brain, so I'll tap the top. Well, that didn't get it, so I'll tap the side. I don't know how many. I've only seen skulls with just one hole, but, and so I don't know how they knew where to put the hole. But in any uh, uh, way, shape, or form, it wasn't pleasant. Could we see them? I'm excited. Yeah. There's a sounder. Oh, so that wow. would go into, go into a wound and... Uh, and just move around until, uh, and you could stick your ear, you know, here and uh, hear a scrape or whatever. Uh, you'll know that's where it's at. And a trephine, it's a wooden handle that comes off to fit in the to fit in the uh, surgeon's kit. But basically, it's just a flat drill. A uh, a person that is a machinist would uh, it would uh, uh, make him think of an end mill, where a, it's just basically a drill with a Instead of having a point to it, it's completely flat, but it's very, very sharp, very sharp. It, it wouldn't take much to cut in scalp and, and, get, and get into bone. How would you describe those? It, they're definitely sharp. <laughs> it feels like the teeth on a saw, which is basically mm -hmm. what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's meant to cut a, basically a circle out of the skull, right? Right. And then the sounder almost looks like, in my mind, it looks like two jalapeno peppers on a on a metal rod. <laughs> yeah, they're curved just like a jalapeno pepper. You're yeah. right. Yeah. That's, I I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's <laughs> that's good. Yeah, there was uh, think of an account that I heard where a soldier got injured and a surgeon was with them out in the field and uh, was digging around trying to find the projectile and he went back to it later because he couldn't find it initially and the soldier asked him if you're going to fish around in there could you at least clip your fingernails first <laughs> so having something like a sounder would definitely be a lot better even though by today's standards it's mm -hmm. archaic well like i say uh if if you don't sterilize it it's it's not much better than your fingers but maybe a little <laughs> bit but sterilizing you know, that's uh, kind of the uh, byproduct of a lot of uh, 19th century uh, problems, basically. Uh, let's, for example, in interpretation, when somebody asked me, uh, what was their favorite drink? I usually say anything hot. I don't care if it's 110 degrees out there, but coffee or hot tea, as opposed to water, as opposed to lemon sugar, uh, as opposed to cold tea because uh, they don't realize it, but when they boil the coffee water, they're taking care of cholera. 
they're eradicating cholera with the boiling of the water. Uh, it's a it's a mindset thing in the fact that you know when I drink water or my friend drinks water, he gets sick sometimes, and sometimes he dies, and sometimes very fast. I'll stick with hot because uh, anything hot because that's uh, one thing I can tell that when we all drink coffee, we don't get sick, we don't die. That transposes to uh, the food. It was always boiled, except in the field, it was fried in the field and boiled in the garrison at, at garrison. So. Anything you'd like to add while we're on this topic of these interesting artifacts? It's just completely different compared to the instruments that doctors use today. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of doctors, if they could see some of this stuff and see how procedures were done in this time period, they would be appalled. Yes, they would. So you work with a lot of different weapons. The fort has, it was an army fort, so there's a lot of weapons. Mm -hmm. How many weapons do you deal with? Catalog-wise, we have about uh, 40. A lot of them were used here. Uh, not not physically, but I mean a lot of that style or type were, was used here that we have in the collection. Uh, as I think uh, uh, reported earlier or talked about earlier, we do have a couple of uh, F Company 3rd Infantry rifles that were actually uh, marked as such. Um, a little side note on this, the Army or let's say the government, the Ordnance Department, didn't like you stamping anything. Stenciling was okay, but stamping uh, was was not. They didn't like that, especially Springfield Armory. So uh, how these uh, certain companies uh, got away, they would have had to, uh, with company funds, would have had to purchase that stamp and how they, uh, which is not, not a problem, but uh, whether they were reprimanded or discouraged or said, uh, no, thank you, we'll go ahead and stamp them anyway. How they got by with it, we don't know, but interesting little small tidbit of um, military authority there but uh, it's almost like the d's that are carved on uh, the barracks mm -hmm. from company d mm -hmm. of the third infantry and, mm -hmm. exactly because uh, defacing government property was a, was a an offense just like it is today you carve your name on, at fort larned and you get to go to hutchison kansas to see a federal judge to uh, assess your fine and it's not cheap <laughs> Do you have a favorite weapon? Not really. Not really. They, you, you know, when you're taking care of all, you try to give uh, each one equal equal time. And, and uh, we do have uh, one weapon I'd like to see out here that uh, was used on, uh, as an experiment. The Army made about 1,018 of these weapons, and they're called Ward Burton. And uh, actually, Fort Larned got 16 of them from what I gather, uh, to pass around to the troops to see how they like it. The, the, the Ordnance Department uh, did this quite regularly when, that, when a new weapon would come up. Part of the, part of the testing of it would be to uh, test it in cold climate, test it in hot climate, you know. And uh, uh, we actually got about 16 of them to pass amongst the 3rd Infantry to, uh, to test. Been interesting what, they, what their evaluation was on it because the Army didn't adopt it. But I just brought that up because uh, uh, it is something we'd like to have but don't have. It'd be nice in the collection. Over the years working with you, it's been wonderful to hear your expertise on all things historic firearms. I've been collecting firearms myself since 1957. Just a couple of years. Yeah, just a couple of years. It's a fun hobby, and it is getting very, very expensive now. Certain weapons that I can remember seeing in at gun shows uh, that were under a thousand dollars are approaching five, seven, eight thousand dollars. Whether you're talking weapons or anything like that, exactly. it's it's really an investment, and it is. that's what's wonderful that 
we're able to have these things that whether they have provenance to the fort or mm -hmm. the fort's era, mm -hmm. uh, it is really cool to be able to have these and be able to present them and preserve them so that hopefully 150 years down the line, if, hopefully we're not the only ones that have something, but, mm -hmm. but in case we are. Well, you, when you stop and, and look at, at, at what, you know, a museum does is uh, basically I think they're all, for the most part, doing an excellent job because you just mentioned 100 and will they be here for 150 years? Well, they've been around for 150, sometimes 200 years, and they're still in fairly, you know, decent shape as long as they don't deteriorate anymore. I see no problem. But, uh, you know, if you neglect them or or don't take care of them, they can't take care of themselves. So uh, it's up, up to you to basically, uh, you know, observe and, and react to whatever's, uh, whatever its affliction may be. And that's where you come in. <laughs> <laughs> well, we try. And uh, I'd say you do a fantastic job. Well, thanks. So there were a lot of soldiers on the fort. Are most of the artifacts from soldiers or? Well, I wish I could say yes, but uh, this was a military fort for 19 years and a uh, working cattle and horse ranch or uh, ranch for uh, nearly 80 years. So most of the stuff that uh, we have in the collection, I'm kind of uh, repeating myself, but most of the stuff in the collection uh, is from the time period, but doesn't really have provenance. The things that we do know that were, were here when the fort was active are very few and far between. And that kind of spills over into the um, uh, archaeology end of it because the farm was after the fort. So anything you find is going to be on top in, in, when you dig down or when an, when an archaeological dig is performed, you're going to dig down and it's, you're going to find all the stuff from the farm period first. Because I know one area that I was told was basically a, a dump for the uh, farm period, and it was basically right in the area where the blockhouse is. So uh, if you were to go over there, you're going to probably find a lot of farm objects. And I said 216,000 objects. Uh, I can pretty safely say 170,000 are archaeology, and of that, probably less than 10,000, maybe 15,000 are military objects. A lot of them are uh, animal bones, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a lot of they. The old sutler store was turned into a. Uh, uh, the, it was removed, but the foundation for the basement was still there, and uh, basically, actually, it wasn't the the uh, uh, sutler store. It was a sutler residence uh, during the farm period when they would slaughter and butcher. A lot of the bones were just shoved over into the. Uh, it was used as as basically a. A dump for the for the carcasses and 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 skeletons of ca cattle, uh, sheep, uh, chickens. Uh, we have a lot of bird bones, and most of them are chicken. So, but again, that falls under the archaeology, and exactly. it has to be yeah. cataloged. Yeah, yeah. We tried <laughs> we tried to cut a cut a corner. I remember when I first got here, two other rangers and I were doing backlog museum backlog. We had nearly 60,000 items to, that were on backlog. So our job was to do as much as we could that summer. Lo and behold, we got every three of us got everything done except, uh, about, uh, five or 6,000 bones. They were in a, in a museum type fiberglass, uh, barrel 
in in storage. Uh, our boss uh, thought that, uh, which is which is perfectly legal. Uh, thought that we could, uh, since they were all in bags, uh, we could bag, uh, you know, catalog them by a bag. In other words, weigh them and uh, catalog them as just, uh, you know, uh, bovine or bird or whatever. Until we three discovered that each and every bone had a field site number on it. Well, that that took away the uh, the bag of bones, and that, then we had to catalog every single individual bone. Goodness. So, so it took a little longer. So I work in the schoolhouse when I do living history mm-hmm. for uh, events at the fort, and a lot of people come in and ask me questions about mm-hmm. uh, the women and children on the fort. Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of artifacts that belong to women and children? Yes. I mean, I, I can't, again, I can't say that... Uh, some of the clothing that we have, we have a wedding dress, uh, which was basically donated. I'm pretty sure it had no provenance to the fort, but it is a good uh, uh, study po- uh, item to, uh, uh, you know, check out hand stitching and, and the material itself. And then we have uh, several other uh, undergarments, ladies' undergarments that, uh, you know, still uh, uh, are in pretty pretty good shape. As far as children, we have a, quite a few toys. We don't know uh, some of these toys could have been from the late 1800s when uh, the when the fort had already closed, and some of the children of the uh, owners of the ranch. You know, we can't really date them, but because the the spread of the way toys were manufactured back then uh, were uh, went a long ways. It, you know, it, it covered a lot of, of, of time or period. Basically, what I brought was uh, some call it china. I'm 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 thinking more so of just basically ceramic, but they're miniatures. There's a little uh, dish with uh, a broken section. There's a pitcher that's probably about two inches high. Has a chunk of it gone out of the uh, main body. I also brought a doll's leg, obviously broken off of a doll, and you can tell they're all pretty much made of the same material, some, some sort of ceramic. And I brought a an original slate or chalkboard for writing. Maybe after 1866, the army uh, was forced, or the the rules and regulations stated that all forts will provide a school for children of the fort. Now, an officer maybe he doesn't. Uh, maybe he thinks that the uh, his child could get a better education, and it's perfectly okay for him to send that child back east for maybe a better education, but. Uh, there were very few enlisted men out here that had children. Uh, the Army's a little more lax on this as the years go by. So by the late 1870s, it's been relaxed just a little bit. Uh, they still had to provide a school, and uh, this would have could have been something uh, used. Where I'm not sure of the provenance of this. I could, through the museum program, find out where it came from. I know the... Uh, Ceramic uh, pitcher, plate, and uh, and doll's leg. They're their archaeology. They came from here, but we just aren't exactly sure what what time and when they when they were. You know, I know when they were found, but I just don't know what uh, what time and whether it was a child of the fort or again the ranch period. So that's it, one, that's a, that's a question that'll probably never get answered. That's a tough thing that uh, you know, working with you and. Uh, working with our artifact series on on social media, sort of discerning whether it's fort era or mm-hmm. or ranch era yeah. for some of these things is yeah. very difficult. If this was only a ranch, we'd know. If this was only a military fort, we'd know. But uh, I can remember when we were doing the backlog, 
we ran across a watering bit and uh, in archaeology, and it hadn't been cataloged yet. And uh, so that's and and it was the uh, toggle type. Well, actually, no, I, I should say it was a watering bit toggle, and that dates Civil War. That was a that was a big plus. We also found half a valve guide for a Ford tractor. So uh, you know, and that's probably eighteen or Thank I mean nineteen forty. So uh, we yeah. we could pretty well differentiate, you know, between the the valve guide and the uh, and the watering bit toggle. So that was pretty cut and dried there, but. Uh, yeah. A lot of times that does, you, you don't get that luxury. For those listening and for those who might want to help out a little bit more, what are some ways that uh, that those uh, in the area might be able to help out, say with volunteering, or uh, how can someone from a distance help out with uh, some of the things you deal with? Well, uh, a few years ago, I think 2019, I knew a young man that was named Ben Long that came out here, and the first thing that uh, management had him do was help me do inventories. Now that is a lovely job <laughs> when you're doing when you're trying to trying to uh, account for twelve thousand items, twelve thousand plus items, and so we're always you know in need of a volunteer uh, to come out and help uh, with the inventory. It, the, the plus is you you get to go into uh, areas where uh, you, you don't normally get to go, yeah. and uh, uh, like the vault uh, for one thing, uh, the vault. Uh, has uh, nearly about 9,000 items in it, so uh, and they're not on display, so they're just sitting there in probably the best climate-controlled uh, room in the whole park. Yeah, we could, we, we always, you know, aside from volunteering for uh, soldiers or volunteering for school teachers or volunteering for uh, uh, cooks and, and uh, laundresses and things like that, you know, there's always, uh, for the type that doesn't really want to dress out, uh, We've always got room for you to inventory or something else with the museum. So absolutely, let us know. And uh, for those listening, if you want to see some of the items that are in the vault, most of the items that are featured on our artifact series on social media come from there. So uh, a lot of those items, uh, and maybe we'll even feature some of the items we have here soon uh, so you can see those a little better. But yeah, there's a lot in there and... Uh, like you said, they're in the most ideal situation so they can be preserved. Right. Um, and do we rotate some of those things in and out sometimes? Well, the uh, go-to idea right now by uh, uh, museum management is things that they really want things on display to be reproduction so that we can remove the original. But that's hard to do because uh, sometimes you just can't come up with a reproduction item that you maybe have on display. But uh, I've tried to move uh, most of the original items, original cataloged items into the museums, what we call the museum rooms, uh, which are rooms on display, uh, but they're sealed. Uh, as opposed to living history rooms, which are rooms that people can, volunteers and staff can go in and give the visitor a slice of life of, uh, of whatever they're portraying, an officer's wife, a school teacher, uh, a surgeon, uh, you know. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your perspective and a bit of the work you do. And thank you for the work you do. And Thanks for having me come on board here and tell about it. I won't say it's a thankless job. I mean, I get thanked for a lot uh, for for various things, but uh, they, it, it comes few and far between. But, you know. It's a behind-the-scenes kind it's of job. It's a behind-the-scenes. That's yeah. right. That's well put. Yeah. All right. 
Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, folks. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. Uh, we certainly had a blast interviewing Mike uh, and hearing his perspective. Uh, if you don't already follow us on social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also be sure to check out our website. We have a lot of great resources on there. Also, as mentioned in the episode, uh, our series on uh, social media artifact uh, is where we feature a lot of the items that uh, aren't on display and are in the uh, preserved in the vault there. So be sure to check that out. If you're already following us, check out Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. They have a lot of great content and they kind of share the same story as Fort Larned. And their story there, they cover the uh, November uh, 1864 massacre uh, by Shevington and his men. Uh, very somber site, but uh, definitely important for our, for our history. So we want to thank you again for listening. Uh, be sure to leave us a review, and we hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time on Footsteps, the Fort Larned National Historic Site podcast. <laughs>